0: Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to The Leadership Drip.
1: Hey everybody,
2: welcome back to The Leadership Drip. And I'm telling you, Jeff, I am super excited for our guest today. Uh, This dude I have uh, followed, I have seen in person live. I know he's been been a great friend to so many uh, churches and uh, man, uh, we're glad to have Dr. Derwin Gray with us. I mean, and what a story that you have from the NFL to the pulpit. Now that's not always uh, an easy transition and we'll get into some of that a little bit later, but, uh, pastor Derwin, thank you so much for being on the
1: show today. Welcome. Hey, thank you so much. It's my honor and privilege. Awesome.
0: We're, uh, I've got to know, so I've been sort of following you for a while. How does a kid end up at BYU as a college football player? end up as a pastor outside of the nfl
1: (laughs) wow man you know the older i get the uh the more i'm blown away with god's providence and and how he works so uh your audience may or may not know this but uh byu is a mormon school right Mm -hmm. and so i grew up in san antonio texas it's uh overwhelmingly white it's overwhelmingly mormon and so coming out of high school Uh, I had three scholarship offers, University of uh, of, uh, TCU, Texas Christian University, Kansas State University and Brigham Young. And back then, TCU and Kansas State were not very good. Mm -hmm. And Brigham Young was good. And they were on ESPN every Saturday night. But it was a Mormon school. I didn't know much about Mormons, but I was warned, like, don't go there. You know, it's a lot of racism, prejudice. Um, But my thing was, I wanted to get a great education. I wanted to get out of Texas, and BYU did a great job of recruiting me. So that's how a black dude from the hood <laughs> got to uh, got to BYU. And 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 now that I look back, it was it was good in the sense that it taught me how to um, understand people from different perspectives and different cultures. Um, I met my wife there. Uh, we've been married. 28 years would be 29 years, come May 23rd. And so, you know, tons, tons of of incredible things. Uh, made some lifelong relationships. Uh, Coach Lavelle Edwards, who's who's now passed away, is a Hall of Fame coach, became like a mentor, a dad. So it it was it was a great experience. And then on the flip side, when I did become a Christian, um, I had to understand the historical beliefs of what it meant to be a Christian because a lot of my family and friends were Mormon. And Mm. so there's some theological doctrinal differences. And so it actually helped me to be better at understanding Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, that's good.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you pastor a great church in Charlotte area called Transformation Church, and uh, you planted that church. And so, um, you know, my wife and I both were We watch you guys on Sunday mornings, especially during this quarantine era, you know, that we're all in and um, always appreciate your messages and your approaches, especially on some of these more difficult topics, like racism in our country, like racism, even in our churches. And the thing that I really appreciate about your perspective is that you come from a very bibliocentric approach to handling these conversations. You don't sugarcoat the truth, but at the same time, you're very careful about not necessarily isolating one particular people group over the other or whatever. So all that to say, um, you wrote a book recently uh, called The Good Life Book, and uh, you talk a lot in that book about some of those things. So kind of how are you approaching personally sort of this season of great discontent in our communities and our churches, and and what is the thriving heartbeat message that you're trying to get across right now?
1: Yeah, well, uh, I I appreciate you acknowledging that. Let, let me let me give you just a little bit of context, right So I did not grow up in church. I actually came to faith through a teammate with the Colts. Uh, his name was Steve Grant and my wife came to faith through a woman at her job. And so neither one of us had a church background. Mm-hmm. And so when we became followers of Jesus, Like we literally believe that Jesus was Lord over all. And if Jesus is Lord over all, then that means we need to talk about all topics in the context of the gospel. And so we didn't know that you were not supposed to talk about racism. Now, when I say talk about racism, I don't mean one sermon in Black History Month. I'm talking about how the, the New Testament is one of the most anti-racist, if not the most anti-racist documents in the history of humanity. Right. And so all throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament, there's this racial tension. One time I was asked, and I've never been asked this question by a person of color, but mostly from white Christians who grew up in a church, is they'll say, Pastor, what, why do you talk about race so much in your messages? And I say, well, because the Bible does. You know, think about it. If you take race out of the Bible, Jesus is not Jewish. There's no good Samaritan. There's no Samaritan woman at the well. There's no Cornelius the Italian. There's no Gentiles, uh, uh, Hittites, Jesubites, presbyterians Egyptians, Jews. And at the end of the Bible, there's no every nation, tribe, and tongue around the throne of God. And so my question is, why have we allowed the devil to strip this so important topic out of preaching and te- te- teaching and biblical exegesis. And the answer is the devil divides and the devil hides.
2: Amen. And
1: what he wants to do is divide us by hiding the truth. Uh, but the sad part, here's the sad part, and there has to be a reckoning. A lot of my white pastor friends who, who looked at me for advice and encouragement, Uh, For some of them, after the George Floyd tragedy, they tried to talk on racism for a few weeks at their churches, and it was like a revolt. Mm. And so this is one thing that I've said a long time. If you rarely talk about racism from the pulpit, your pews are filled with racists. Mm. And the bar for being a racist is too low. Being a racist is not simply I'm a part of the neo-Nazi group right. or I'm a proud of the Ku Klux Klan, being a racist is like, well, you're good enough to be my brother in Christ, but not my brother-in-law. Um, being a racist or racial indifferent is, <clears throat> well, yeah, you know, those things in the past, uh, I didn't own slaves, I didn't do Jim Crow. And that's true, no white person today should ever feel guilty about slavery or Jim Crow or those things. But every white person today has got to know that they benefited from those past sins. Think about about, about this. If if you own a home in the United States of America, that's because of the oppression of Native Americans. And that's just a small example. So I own a home in, in America. That's off of the back of this land that I used to live in it's called the Catawba. The Catawba Indians were everywhere around here. You don't see them anymore. Why? Because yeah. they're gone.
0: Yeah. There, so, we, we live, to re- reference that, we live here in Southeast Tennessee and there are markers all throughout this yeah. area of the Cherokee Nat- March, the Trail of Tears. Like there are signs that says the actual trail, the March of Tears, that some of our homes either sit on or sit next to. So we, we completely understand that piece.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I would suspect if that was preached in Tennessee churches that are primarily white, it would be a revolt. Uh, Why are you trying to make us guilty? And so one of of the things that I'm trying to do now is help people understand, and specifically for my white brothers and sisters to understand your identity is in Jesus Christ alone, not the atrocities of America's past, not, the super great things that America has done as a country. America has been a force of good in the world, will be a force of good in the world, but like every nation in a fallen world, there are ugly things. And if we don't acknowledge those things, we're doomed to repeat them. If we don't acknowledge the systemic and structural evils that have oppressed people that got us to where we are, we're not gonna acknowledge those things. But then on the other side, I feel like people who devoid themselves from the gospel run the risk of going all the way left and everything is the problem of white folks. No, white people are not the problem. Black people are not not the pr- problem. Uh, any group comprised of an ethnicity on earth is not the problem. The problem is sin, death, and dark powers. We fight against principalities
0: mm. and
1: high r- rulers. So part of the problem is, um, As the church, we have to grow in holiness and what I mean in holiness that's growing in Christ likeness and for too long. Many Christians have sided with politics instead of their brothers and sisters in Christ, we have allowed a donkey and an elephant to divide the people of the lamb and so. What I'm talking to you about right now is what I talk about at Transformation Church. And of of course, I get some some emails and and that's where you sit down and that's where you talk. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4-2, you know, preserve the unity. Christ already unified his people. We have to guard it. We have to preserve it. And he says the way that you do it is with patience and with humility and ultimately with love. But we're too busy being discipled by Fox News, CNBC, Newsmax, conspiracy theories, all this nonsense. We need people. My goal is to get people to the lamb to grow in the image of the lamb and have the mind of the lamb. And for those of you don't know, uh, the lamb is Jesus. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's been an interesting kind of uh, a couple months, especially about the time of the recording of the show. But um, you know, We had Beth Moore on recently, and we talked a little bit about nationalism and, and sort of that, that kind of problematic approach. And our culture, and I think you, you, you've said this so well, but our culture has hijacked conversations that the church should be having. And so culture tells us that the de-escalation of rhetoric is the devaluing of topic. So it's really difficult to come to a calm table with a brother or sister of, of another color or another political party. And actually, have these reasonable dialogues and conversation, especially when it comes uh, about this conversation of sin and and racism and all of these things that we should be talking about on a regular regular basis. And so, as we as we kind of approach that that topic, and as we kind of weed through some of the sensitivity, if we can, as mature believers, we should be able to. What are some of the really positive outcomes that you're seeing? through this, through this conversation, through this dialogue, through working with other brothers and sisters, how is the church actually moving forward?
1: Yeah, you you know, so, so the first thing, and this is going to seem somewhat ethereal and abstract, but it's very livable. Ephesians 3.10 says, uh, in essence, that when Jews and Gentiles, so Jews and everybody else, when we are unified in Christ, that we display the magnifold wisdom of God. Mm -hmm. That word uh, 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 manifold means multicolored wisdom of God. And so let's never forget, individual salvation only exists so God can create a family. And the family that God is creating is the family that he promised Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Well, Jesus comes to the seed of Abraham and through his sinless life, his atoning death, his resurrection, the sending of the spirit, God forms this family that he promised Abraham. And it's a transcultural, multi-ethnic family. And then this family learns to love each other as brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing when we do that, that is telling the demonic realm that Jesus has won. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, so so our presence together bears witness that we came out of the grave with Him together on the third day, that we're united to Him. Secondly, there is so much common good when people who are different in Christ develop relationship. Uh, let me give you my own illustration. So before I came to the Panthers, this is in nineteen ninety eight. Um, I didn't want to live in the South of the United States of America because my mind was, there's literally going to be Klansmen going down the street. Uh, It's going to be horrible. Uh, Now there are some places like that in the South, Mm -hmm. but but when I came to Charlotte, it was the new South. I was like, this is amazing. This is absolutely incredible. And then I began to, when we founded Transformation Church uh, begin to pastor people who liked NASCAR like that's a big deal for me Mm -hmm. as a black dude I'm like you like what NASCAR what in the world is that about come to find out NASCAR is scientific man NASCAR is big business NASCAR is I mean you're dealing with quantum physics almost and so these country white folks became my brothers and sisters and I began to learn from them and they began to learn from me. And so God knows what he's doing that when he says that Jew and Gentile become one, Mm. that we become one in Christ because my difference and your difference makes us different for the better. Yeah. What happens is, is your story becomes my story. My story becomes your story. And proximity breeds intimacy, intimacy, into me you see. And when we see into each other, we begin to see the heart of God expressed differently through our brothers and sisters of different ethnicities, social economic classes, and cultures. So individually, but then collectively. And communally, we can go into the world and be able to engage the bigger things of the world in a unified voice, not uniformity, right. unified. Mm-hmm. Uniformity is sameness. Unified is within our differences, whether if you're a Republican or a Democrat, we can, we can come at this. Like some of my Republican friends are shocked to know that a third of Democrats are not pro-choice. They are are pro-life and they're working through the Democratic platform to try to change that. And then some of my Democratic friends are shocked that not all Republicans were pro-Trump and all the stuff that he brought. And so what happens is, is when we're unified in Christ, we can come at the issues together and still have freedom in our unity because it's not uniformity to proclaim and live out the gospel differently. And so there's there's all types of things that, we, that, that we've been able to do, uh, that together we are stronger and it's our differences that make us different for the better.
0: Yeah. You, you keep mentioning a word, identity, that our identity is in Christ. And so as a as a black pastor in the South, as as just an individual, we all sort of bring identities to the table. Like yep. and we saw that played out, I think, with this election. We we all waved a banner of some sort, a flag of some sort that seemed to be the 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 pronouncing or, or dominant identity of our life, where we associated. How are you helping people sort of reframe their identity to understand that? Our identity isn't in these things, but is in Christ. So whether I'm Republican or, D- or Democrat, that's not my identity. Right. How are you helping to unpack that?
1: Well, I, I think the first thing from, from the pulpit to the equipment of staff to the systems and processes and discipleship philosophy of our church, which I can't get into all that. But what I will say is this, is too much of evangelical Christianity is uh, do's and don'ts and if it's the cool hip uh, part of evangelicalism, you're not talking about stuff that's serious in a way. It's pure entertainment, it's uh, you know, it's spiritual methadone, uh, but then the hard right conservatives, we're against the culture. Like, I don't remember Jesus in a culture war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just don't remember Jesus in a culture war. I remember Jesus being a friend to sinners. I remember Jesus going to Matthew's house and all of his sinner friends came. The people that Jesus had a beef with were the religious people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. The sinners, he would have a problem with. Like like he met them where they were. And like he said, a doctor goes to those who are sick, not those who are well. And what's sad is those who thought they were well were actually sicker than those who were actually sick. The ones who acknowledged they were sick were on their way to becoming well. Mm. Um, so what, 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 were, what were we talking about? Oh oh, yeah. So (laughs) identity. Yeah. So, so we have to get back to preaching an apostolic message. And what I mean by apostolic message is I mean, the apostles, what did the apostles preach about Jesus? My goal for every sermon is for people to leave going. I had no idea. Jesus was that great. Mm. I had no idea. Jesus Was that beautiful? I had no idea that Jesus's salvation was so sufficient. Salvation is not just how you come into faith. Salvation is overcoming pornography. Salvation is overcoming bigotry. Salvation is when we raise from the dead. But a part of salvation is our union life in Christ. So just by way of illustration, book of Ephesians is kind of like my New Testament book. So This is who you are in Christ. Here's some background. The book of Ephesians was written as a circuit letter throughout Turkey. Jews and Gentiles were having a problem getting together. Like if when we're born again, we're infants, and it takes years to grow to reflect Christ's likeness. So think about about this. You've got churches where Jewish people, their entire historical existence was, how do we survive slavery in Egypt? How do we survive the Canaanites, Hittites, Zebulites? How do we surpri- uh, su- uh, survive the Babylonians? How do we survive the Romans? In other words, Gentiles suck. <laughs> and now, Paul, you're telling me they're my brother and sisters in Christ? They're the ones who crucified my cousin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you had Gentiles going, man, I, I don't want to be friends with these Jews. They're uppity. They're, you know, they think that, that the Messiah is just theirs. So how did Paul get them to live together? Watch this. Ephesians 1.3, we're chosen in Christ. Ephesians 1.4, we're holy and blameless in Christ. Ephesians 1.5 and 6, we've been adopted in Christ. Ephesians 1.7, we're redeemed in Christ. Ephesians uh, 8 and 9, we have the grace of Christ. Ephesians 10, we're united in Christ. Ephesians 11 through 14, we've been sealed and guaranteed by Christ. That's like eight or nine different identities right there. Preach those things, teach those things. We're so busy trying to get behavior modification mm-hmm. that we teach yeah. a Christless Christianity.
0: That's true. Wow, that's true. Can
1: I? Can, can, I, can I just keep on going for it? Just yeah, please, um, please. help I, yourself. Because that was good for me. Ephesians one fifteen through eighteen, Paul says. I love you and I love the way you love each other. Ephesians 19 through tw- 23, we're in Christ. He's seated above all powers. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, we were dead. Ephesians 5, we're made alive. Ephesians 2, 6, we're seated in the heavens with Christ. Ephesians 2, 7, we are trophies of Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 10, we are the workmanship of Christ. Ephesians 2, 11 through 14, we are the peace of Christ. Ephesians 2, 16 through 18, Jew and Gentile, we are now one in Christ. Ephesians 2, 18, we got the same daddy in Christ. Amen. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, we are a holy dwelling. We are a temple of God. How many different identities is that? Like, I don't know how many it is. I lost count. It was a lot. <laughs> Actually, it's 23. I'm going to write that down, 23. Okay, so... What you do is you continue to teach the work of Christ. That's a part of your discipleship. It's a part of your being. The only thing that's going to break the power of idolatry. I, so the people who stormed the U.S. Capitol, their identity was the election has been stolen uh america's gonna become communist we're gonna save america so that moved them that's what they thought that they were so the only thing that can break the power of darkness is the power of light through the sun what what i say at transformation church is this the scene of the crime is your mind Hmm. we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind but from the pulpit if you're not hearing much about christ there's not going to be much transformation in your mind Listen. If if God has your mind, He has your heart. He has your heart. He has your actions. Yeah. And what we try to do is we preach changing actions, and the gospel gets beneath the surface. So, whether if you're white, whether if you're black. So if you're black, listening, your identity is not tied into our ancestors were one one time enslaved. Therefore, I'm still angry or pissed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of african americans that do that well i'm just going to stay mad no jesus revoked our get mad card when we said yes to him and so it takes a mutual responsibility for all of us to live in the gospel uh but i say this with with deep respect is our pulpits are so anemic that the people are anemic
0: Mm. yep yeah that's true
2: man uh okay so (laughs) (laughs) pastor that's why i watch on sunday i want to make
0: it mentioned because i love what you said about the mind because i grew up in what i would call a heart church like god ask jesus into your heart like god wants to change your heart and as i've got matured as a believer i realized scripture is full of things that talk about my mind that my thoughts are so critical and important and like the only thing i heard growing up was take every thought captive which meant when you have a sinful thought or Mm -hmm. a tempting thought you just throw that out. But as I've matured in my faith, I've understood that that the mind is really such a critical component of our faith understanding. And, and I agree, there are not a lot of pastors going, fix how you think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I don't know the context which you grew up in, so I can just speak from a biblical context. For the Hebrew people, your heart would encompass your mind but most people don't know that. It's right. more of a emotions, right? Exactly. And so, you know, Jesus says, love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And so it's your mind, your will, and it's your emotions. But to your point uh, is is that a lot of people don't want to think, right? And, and so one of my favorite passages uh, is from the book of Ephesians. Philippians, and this is a part of our discipleship. Philippians dealt with Paul getting Jews and Gentiles to live together. And he tells them in Philippians 2, uh, 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Let's just stop there. So Paul is gospeling this new multi-ethnic church where there, you know, man, there's beef there, there's issues there. And he's going, you know, do nothing out of selfish ambition or bankruptcy but consider others better than yourself. So, so practically how would that play out in a country where policing started out through slavery, the civil rights, sometimes police were part of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, are there great policemen? Overwhelmingly, yes. Do blue lives matter? Overwhelmingly, yes. Are there some messed up policemen? Yes. So when you consider other better, better other people better than yourselves in humility, instead of dismissing police brutality, you go, "Hey man, let let me listen to that." Like you can be pro police and pro police reform simultaneously. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be one yeah. wins. And one loses, right? Um, And I'm not a part of the Black Lives Matter organization. The reason why I marched in Black Lives Matter protests was not because of Black Lives Matter. I marched because Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Dr. King didn't do what he did because of Black Lives Matter. Dr. King did what he did because injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And before Dr. King, the King of Kings said every nation, tribe, and tongue would worship him. Right. And so therefore, this is a Jesus, a gospel issue. So when a person of color says, this is a problem, it's a historical problem. You don't defend it. You listen. Hey, how can I walk with you?" you? You know? Yeah. Um, and then verse verse four says, and don't don't just look out for your own interest, look out for the interest of others. And then that beautiful verse in Ephesians 2 5 says, and you have the mind of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes into that early hymn of Jesus taking off his divinity, putting mm-hmm. on humanity, the God man suffered and died. Right. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to live a cruciform life, meaning I'm going to leverage my life for you in humility. I don't expect the world to get that, but I expect Christians to get that in their church communities and then going on, on mission to give foretaste of eternity in their practice and the way they live.
2: Yeah. So, man, there's so many different directions I want to go right now. But the, I, I love what you're saying, because I think the heartbeat of, of, of what I've known of you personally and the heartbeat of what I've seen from Transformation Church is this multi-ethnic approach to leadership, to life, to ministry, to evangelism, mm-hmm. to communal support, to engagement in every conceivable level. And it's not multi-ethnic in the sense of, hey, this is what's cool and trendy it's multi-ethnic in the sense that, hey, this is what is biblical and this is yeah. what Christ died for, right? Yeah. Right. So, so I think, I think the, the great thing about what you're saying is is it removes this, this um, sort of this social media-esque kind of multi-ethnicity ethnicity that pushes us to just be cool and trendy. And I think the, the message of consistency is what I'm hearing from you not just the message of opportunity.
1: It's awesome. yeah, yeah. We should yeah.
2: celebrate MLK Day. Totally. We should celebrate M- MLK every day. Yes. Right?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you know, um, Robert, um, I have been around long enough to have seen multi-ethnic church ministry be cussed out, dissed, pushed to the side to where now it's cool. So I guess I'm getting old because when I first started, you know, there was just, I mean, you that, that was like anathema. Now it's like cool and trendy, you know, and so this is, this is, this is what I want to say and for the, and for the listener, uh, Galatians 3.8 says this, the gospel was preached before ha- beforehand to Abraham and this, all the nations would be blessed. So, Paul equates God telling Abraham, I'm gonna give you a big family made up of all the ethnic groups in the world. So the gospel is not just Jesus died for your sins. The gospel is not only that Jesus died for your sins, but he puts you in a family with brothers and sisters with different colored skins. Right. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and this family, This family is Jesus with his nail-pierced hands presenting them to his dad. That Jesus is the one who comes to fulfill God's covenant with Abraham. Mm -hmm. So me planting a multi-ethnic church, leading and serving a multi-ethnic church, living a multi-ethnic life is out of obedience to recognize God keeping his promise. And that's what I'm trying to get through with my books, with my preaching, with my teaching. We're not a multi-ethnic church because President Obama was president. We're not a multi-ethnic church because the demographics of America is changing. We are a multi-ethnic church because Ephesians 3.11 says this is the eternal purpose of God realized in Christ Jesus. So the way I see it is the gospel is a bigger, better, more beautiful story. Not only do those who trust Christ get forgiveness of sins, the very righteousness of God, reconciliation, but we also get a family of brothers and sisters. Yeah. yeah,
0: Pastor. Do you think in the American church we've over individualized our salvation? And oh gosh, yes. it as a community.
1: Oh, without a doubt. Now, uh, by way of illustration, and you guys have heard this before, right? You know, it's like the frog doesn't know it's getting cooked. It's like, oh, thank you for this hot tub, man. This feels good. Oh, you putting some salt in here too? Oh, Epsom salt. That's great. I've been sore, and before you know it, it's so hot you done bubbled and died, right? Mm-hmm. So. Historically, it's important for us to understand this. There was a guy by the name of Rene Descartes, um, a Catholic scholar, and he was battling atheism. He was battling assaults against the faith. And one of the ways that he can convince people that the faith was real is he said, I think, therefore I am. He launched what's called the Enlightenment or modernity the Enlightenment or modernity kicked off Western philosophy, which is very, very individualistic. Mm-hmm. What I mean by individualistic, I mean this by way of illustration. Well, Jesus died for me. Jesus saved me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's me and Jesus. Now, is that true? Yes, but there's more. Jesus doesn't didn't just die for you. He died for your future brothers and sisters as well. So notice when you read the Bible, for example, the Lord's Prayer, our Father. Why doesn't it start with my Father? Mm -hmm. Our Father. So much of the Bible is us and our and we. And even when the Apostle Paul uses the word you in the Greek language, it's written in the second personal pronoun, which means you as in a collective. And so the Bible and salvation is a communal collective team sport. You are drafted individually to be put on a team. Now this makes perfect sense. Why? Because God himself is unity and diversity. Mm-hmm. The father's not the son. The son is not the spirit. One being revealed in three persons, just like a triangle One point here, one point here. You remove any of those points, it's no longer a triangle. triangle has three points. God has three persons in one being, unity within diversity. And so our faith is communal. So what does that mean? What does that practically mean? It means this, that for my white brothers and sisters in Appalachia, who are incredibly poor, that means I should care. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: It means this. For my Asian brothers and sisters United States of America that go to a conference and a white guy dresses up like a ninja and the white folks thinks it's funny and the Asians are sad and disappointed. It means this, that I am my brother and sister's keeper. It means this, I don't live from my blackness. My blackness will never change. My blackness has been redeemed by my Christness. My Christness leads through my blackness. So mm-hmm. we don't want to be colorblind. We want to be color blessed. Like the Lord did not make a mistake giving y'all a lack of a tan.
0: <laughs> Especially this time of year.
1: My color was much
2: different when I lived in SoCal, Pastor. You know? Yeah, <laughs> know like, so
1: so, but my point is the Lord wasn't like Derwin, man, I really wanted to make these guys black, but something happened. No, he knew exactly what he was doing. And hey, you guys want to hear something funny? Yeah. So my, my mother is very fair-skinned. Um, I have an aunt with hazel eyes, light skin and blonde hair. Um, The hair under my arm is like, ridiculously straight. I'm like, what in the world? And if I don't curl up my hair, it'll it'll be straight. And I'm like, I'm gonna take a DNA test. I took a DNA test. I am 23% European. That's almost a quarter. Now amongst black people, I'm chocolate. I'm darker than most but i have more european than most i was i for 4 days man i was just like like what's the like what's the story and my wife she didn't think it was a big deal yeah but i but i said hun you can trace your lineage all the way back to the mayflower she had eight relatives on the May, on the mayflower i said i can track mine to the 1800s and that's it so how did all of this get into me? Like, what's the story? Now, of course, all of it's been redeemed, but it was just fascinating. So, you know, what do you, you know, like, what do, what does a racist do with their DNA if their DNA could talk? Right. right. You know, um, I forgot what I was talking about, but that was a good side
2: story. I'll I'll (laughs) say this now, Jeff will verify this. I have never, ever said this on the show ever. Not once. Okay. But you literally said the words that God dropped into my heart this morning. When you said we're not called to be colorblind, but we are called to be color blessed. Hmm. I think part of the, part of the problem is, is that in our effort to connect with each other, we say I'm colorblind. I don't see people. For their color i see them for who they are right and it's a, it's a very noble approach to some of this conversation but it's not the full approach right because at the end of the day god created me white he created you black he created people with different colors of skin why because he is a creative god and yes then, when we limit god's creativity of the apex of his creation humans us right he created like what sixty thousand beetles or whatever, you know, whatever it is like God
1: created murder hornets. Right. Murder harness, right? And I don't know yeah.
2: why. Like he created all these bees and beetles. And yeah. When it comes to people, when it comes to humanity, the yeah. apex of his affection, the apex of his creation. Yeah. We're not called to be colorblind.
1: That's we're right. called to be
2: color blessed. And so yeah. what I need to do is learn to appreciate not just the fact that you are a human being that god redeemed you the same way he did me but i need to learn to appreciate the fact that you actually do look different and because you look different it actually gives him glory because of how he saw you from eternity that he wanted you to look this way
1: yes and and vice versa like um god has created a beautiful array of people who are image bearers Hmm. um and that is, that is so important. Another thing that I wanna to say too, and I'm currently um, writing about this now, is we live in such a culture of shaming and canceling and everybody just wants to be mad. Yeah. Um, for people of color and particularly as a black man, for our white brothers and sisters of goodwill who may say the wrong thing the wrong way, but with a good heart, like we have to stop shaming them and coming down on them because that's what makes white brothers and sisters not want to engage because there's this fear of, well, what if I don't say the right thing? Yeah. You know, and the devil loves that. The devil loves for us to hide, right? The devil loves for, well, I don't want to say anything because if I do, and so that's where as a black man, but more importantly, as a Christian man, no one... No one can make me not act like a Christian. The posture of a Christian is one of humility, of one of grace. A posture of a Christian is to treat people the way they have treated you. So just a, just a couple of days ago, um, one of our, uh, one of our staff members over our discipleship, Um, She was at the grocery store. She's probably five, four, 130 pounds. As she was going into the grocery store, um, this white man basically cussed her out, called her a blank and in with the B word. And so when she got inside the grocery store, it just all like, what just happened? Like, it was like PTSD, trauma. So as a staff, we talk about it. Our our staff looks like our church. It's very d- d- diverse and we felt, okay, so let's talk about this. So um, a couple of different angles. Number one, right, is there's the physical thing and she, she goes, after what I saw at the U.S. Capitol, uh, a noose, a Confederate flag, she's like, it triggered me that in this day and age, man, there are people who have been given a license to almost be like the 60s again, you know? Um, So from that perspective, there there was fear. And so we wanted to encourage her with that, go ahead and grieve that. But then the other part, what I said was this, no one can make you feel less than because that word does not define you. That word has no power because that word does not define you. The words that define you are cherished, beloved, righteousness, mine, chosen. The words of Christ are what defines you. Um, Now, in saying all, all that, I also shared about three and a half years ago, I was at a stop sign and three guys in a pickup truck drove by and they yelled the N word. I snapped, I was, I was going through traffic. I was flying, I was probably going 70 and a 35. And I caught up to them at a red light and I rolled down my window and I said, what did you say? And it was like teenage boys, maybe early twenties and all the whiteness they had, they got extra pale white. <laughs> and they were like, we, "We, we didn't say anything, right? And all of a sudden when I saw their faces My anger turned into one compassion. Who is it that's poisoned their souls that they would say such a word?
0: Mm.
1: Number two, I went into repentance. Why did I let a word that does not define me elicit that out of me? I played right into the devil's game. Yeah, I played right into the game. Now, there's righteous indignation. What I had was not righteous indignation. Thirdly, who, like say, say, for instance, there's a beef and I hurt them. I'm going to jail. Like no one cares who those dudes are. It's going to be former NFL player, a, a pastor, you know, you know what I'm saying? So the point is vengeance for vengeance is what the devil wants. Mm-hmm. The apostle Paul in Romans 12, 21 says overcome evil with good. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah.
0: What's a great, I mean, great lead into your new book is titled The Good Life. And there's something, uh, it's described as see that happiness does not depend on what happens to you, but what happened to you through Jesus. So kind of unpack why the good life and how we can have it, pastor.
1: Yeah. So, um, about 6 years ago through counseling and discipleship i was just meeting people christian non-christian who were just not happy and i said okay let me let me do a biblical research on happiness
0: mm-hmm.
1: and hiding in plain sight in the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to ever preach was jesus teaching in the beatitudes right the beatitudes are matthew chapter 5 verses 3 through 12 and they start with this blessed and the word blessed is the Greek word makros, and it literally means happy. So happy are the poor in spirit for those is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn for they will become comforted. And, and so what I learned and what I wanted to share was this, is Jesus tells us that our birthright as citizens of his kingdom, as children of his daddy, as dwellings of the Holy Spirit, our birthright is happiness. But but the happiness is not what we think. We think happiness is good things happen to us a lot, but the kind of happiness that God gives us through Christ is him making us good for the world. Hmm. So think of these eight characteristics. One, uh, or here's one, happy are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Like, that makes you good for the world when you're merciful. Um, happy are the pure in heart, for you will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for you be called children of God. And, and so happiness and holiness are two sides of the same coin. Now, I know you guys are at Lee College, so, I mean, holiness all day, right? But <laughs> but, but But holiness is not misery. Yeah. Yeah. The Beatitudes is what holiness looks like. Holiness just means to be a whole human being being conformed to the image of Christ. So, happiness and holiness are two sides of the same coin. So, we can all be happy. It's not contingent upon COVID, it's not contingent upon any circumstance. It's contingent upon the eternal God who's now living in us and through us, making us like Himself.
2: Amen. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I did... It's a great book, and um, I've enjoyed kind of listening to you teach on it, you know, through your messages, and um, and I know you've quoted it so many times, especially in, in, in the past year about things that have gone on circumstantially within our communities and our nation and literally around the world, and so uh, it's a great story and a great, um, it's a great, great message. So, uh, Pastor Derwin, we're almost out of time, and we want to honor yours, and, and um, two
0: questions, wrong
2: Two so. questions.
0: We have the typical final question we'll get to, but we want to know, we're oh. recording the week of Super yes. Bowl Sunday, really, yeah. and you love putting out predictions. Yeah, yeah. So I So we got to know, who's it going to be?
1: So, uh, man, okay, so the Kansas City Chiefs have one of the greatest off-fit fences that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, they are missing both their starting left tackle and right tackle. This is what I think is going to happen. I think that Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator for Tampa Bay is going to uh, run what's called a spy on Pat Mahomes. Pat Mahomes is going to get his yards, but where Pat Mahomes beats you at is in the third and fourth quarter when it's third down and six and everybody's covered, Pat Mahomes can run. So if you put a spy on him, that's going to present him from running. So, I think somehow, some kind of way, Tom Brady's gonna get his seventh ring. Right. I, I, we'll gotta tell,
2: I gotta tell you, I'm 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 not so sure I'm in disagreement because Tampa's defense right now is hot. Fournette is running hard. And Tom Brady, like him, hate him, doesn't really matter. Yes. Goat. Oh yeah. Easy. Easy. Probably the best to ever play the position. That that's,
0: was, that's hey, it. Just, He said he said easy, easy for a guy that played with Peyton. So like, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, so I,
2: I, I don't know, man. I, I think it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a good game. So I think mm-hmm. we're excited about it. Anyway, well, hey, uh, Pastor Irwin, thank you so much. We got one last question for you. It's a question we ask every guest on the show, and uh, the final question is this: Tell us one thing that you learned in college that happened outside of the classroom.
1: <laughs> Listen. <clears throat> What I've learned in college outside of the classroom is this. Birds of a feather flock together. Mm. Do you want to be a chicken or do you want to be an eagle? Surround yourself with people that are going to take you higher than where you are. That'll good. preach.
2: That's good. <laughs> That'll preach. That's good. Hey, It's been a joy to have you on, Pastor. And again, uh, it's Pastor Derwin Gray, Transformation Church, they're in South Carolina, just outside of Charlotte. Uh, former NFL uh, football player and, and friends of the show, do yourselves a favor. Check out the evangelism linebacker on YouTube. Now, he doesn't get any royalties off that show, so, but he should. He should. We need
0: to talk to somebody he, about that. He, I don't know <laughs> who made it. Lifeway or whoever made it, we got to get that worked out. Uh, awesome. This has been a, a theological, biblical lesson master, class, master, master class. class. Yeah. I don't know. We are... Incredibly appreciate it. Pastor, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thank you. You guys are
1: awesome. I appreciate your encouragement. Peace out. Thanks, Pastor.
2: Hey, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way we can get this content to other great leaders. And stay connected with us on Instagram at The Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.